Welcome back to our teaching in the book of Exodus. Now we have finally finished the book of Matthew and we are now returning to Exodus in dealing with the law of Moses because we are in Exodus chapter 22. Now it's not a lot of review that I'm probably going to do in the continuing chapters of Exodus. Maybe in a few chapters I'll do a little review, but for the most part, especially as pertains to the law or the ordinances, commands in the law, because you'll find out that many of them are, are not tied together. There, it's just very small groups of, uh, of issues that may be tied together in two or three verses. And then Moses will move on to another particular point. So you'll find a lot of a, in a, there may be a section to deal with as a whole, in a sense, but there can also be a lot of miscellaneous things still tied together. So I'm just simply saying that my normal manner of reviewing may be slightly different. There may not even be hardly any review whatsoever, such as in this one. The last time we were here, we were in chapter 21. And for the most part, what we were looking at were issues pertaining to personal injury. What, what, defines those injuries, how those injuries should be dealt with and compensation or punishment that should be given to the one, whether it's a person or an animal that was responsible for the injury. And so that's basically in a nutshell of what was going on in chapter 21. Now we're in chapter 22 and we're going to basically deal with the issue of property rights. It is going to be property rights from a number of different perspectives or scenarios would be given, but in a general sense, you'll see that it has to do with property, whether a person has stolen property or whatever the uh, occasion may be. It will be concerning the issue or the idea of property. Okay. Now with all of that said, Let's just simply get into chapter 22, and I think we may be able to finish the entire chapter. Let's give it a shot. If a man steals an ox or a sheep and slaughters it or sells it, he shall pay five oxen for the ox and four sheep for the sheep. If the thief is caught by breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there will be no blood guiltiness on his account. But if the sun has arisen on him, there will be blood guiltiness on his account. He shall surely make restitution. If he owns nothing, then he shall be sold for his theft. If what he stole is actually found alive in his possession, whether an ox or a donkey or a sheep, he shall pay double. Okay, so now we're dealing with the issue concerning Theft. Now, one of the things, let me make this as a side note, that I like about the law of Moses, even though we as Christians are no longer under the law, that is, the law of Moses is no longer a standard of life for us, the law, as the Apostle Paul said, is still good if used in the manner in which it was intended, lawfully. So the point that I'm trying to stress is, even though we do not abide by the commandments of the law, because the law as a source comes from God, the law 
as a whole is good and the principles contained in the law is good for us to understand and have an uh, and have application in our own personal life. And that's what I'm trying to say. We don't simply say Exodus says this and therefore you should do this. We can say Exodus teaches these things and we can understand it is by the principle that is taught here that we live by. And so now let's just simply go into chapter 22. So here is talking about a person who breaks into an, a person who steals from another individual loss of property because of theft. And so he just simply says, if it's an ox or a sheep, if the thief steals an ox, it, he shall, if the thief is found, he shall pay five oxen in return for what he has stolen. If it's a sheep, he shall pay four sheep in return to what he, for, for what he has stolen. That is if the thief is caught. Also too, it simply said now, and the whole point of this is this. Now, whole point is this. Not only does it give a return to the person who lost his sheep or his oxen, to the person whose sheep or oxen was stolen, it gives a return to him. But because we see there is a greatness in the return, that is five for one, four for one, because of such numbers as this, it becomes a deterrent to the thief. So what is God doing? Not only is he returning what has been lost to the owner, but he is also giving a deterrent saying, do not steal because if you do steal, you will pay a price much greater than what you stole. And so therefore, knowing you will pay a much higher price, a person would think twice before he steals. And of course, this all, this part of the law is stemming from the commandment, thou shalt not steal. But anyway, so it goes on to talk about that if the thief is caught in a person's house at night and is killed by the homeowner, then there will be no blood guiltiness upon the homeowner. That is, if you catch a thief and the thief is breaking into your house at night and you happen to kill the thief while he's breaking into your house, there will be no punishment to the homeowner. However, it says, if it is daytime and the homeowner kills the thief in the daytime, then there will be blood guiltiness upon the homeowner. By the, by the idea of blood guiltiness, that simply means he will be charged for homicide. So if a thief is killed in the night, no homicide charges will be brought. But if in the daytime, charges for homicide will be brought against the homeowner. And the idea seems to suggest that God is trying to, being merciful in a sense to the thief in that, that the homeowner has a chance to call for help or do something or to identify the thief because he can see the thief. He can call for help or something to that degree and then the thief can be apprehended and you can deal with the thief accordingly. But if at night where the homeowner can't see, he doesn't know what the person is coming to do, whether he's coming to steal or what. So he just simply protects himself as well as his family. There will be no charges of homicide against him. But if he kills that thief in the daytime, when he can see him, the homeowner will be charged 
with homicide. But anyway, so he continues on and talks about if he's if 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 the thief is caught and he is actually caught with the property that he has stolen, he will pay. He, of course, he will return the property and he will pay double as a penalty for the theft. That is, if he stole the sheep, he'll pay. He'll give the sheep back and pay another two sheep. If he stole the oxen, the same thing applies and play, give back the oxen and pay another two oxen for it. Again, guess what you see? Not only the return to the homeowner for what he has lost, but also the punishment that is given to the thief as a deterrent not to steal anymore. Okay. And then it simply says that if the man cannot pay, if the man cannot pay after he has stolen something, then the man shall be sold into slavery as a repayment for the debt. So if you steal something and you cannot pay the restitution that the law is demanding, you yourself will be sold into slavery. So once again, that means that there will be money that will be given to the owner for his loss and also that punishment as a deterrent to the thief. All right. Now let's continue. Verse number five. If a man lets a field or a vineyard be grazed bare and lets his animal loose so that it grazes in another man's field, he shall make restitution from the best of his own field and the best of his own vineyard. If a fire breaks out and con let's stop right there. Let I like it. Let's look at it. So if a man has an animal and he allows his animal to graze in his field and he intentionally allows his animal to go on to his neighbor's field and graze in his neighbor's field. This is a violation of the law. You should only let your animal graze in your own field. But if your animal went and grazed into your neighbor's field, then the punishment would be that from the man's bet, notice, and it's a beautiful thing, from the best of his crops in his field. If the animal ate of the man's vineyard, then the man would have to pay from the best of his vineyard. So notice that for just simply eating in your neighbor's field, you had to give your best as restitution to your neighbor for a violation of eating in his, you're allowing your animal to eat in his field. For same thing, you would have to give him the very best of your vineyard, vineyard produce because you allowed your animal to eat of his vineyard produce. But notice you had to give your best. Again, guess what you see? Not only is this restitution to the owner who suffered the loss, but because you have to give him even more, just like it was in the earlier part, even more animals. This serves as a deterrent to do what? Respect property rights, respect the boundaries of another person's property as well as his property within itself. Verse number six, if a fire breaks out and spreads to thorn bushes so that stacked grain or the standing grain or the field itself is consumed, he who started the fire shall surely make restitution. If a man gives his neighbor money or goods to keep for, let, let's just deal with that. Let's deal with that. So it simply says, if a fire breaks out and the whole idea is this, 
whoever is responsible, that is the arsonist, whoever is responsible for the fire that breaks out and destroys the property of his neighbor's field or his property, he is responsible for the damage that is done to his neighbor's property. So notice if it was what? Stacked grain or standing grain. Now imagine that. So the neighbor has gone and he has already harvested his field and he has grain stacked and ready. So this becomes expensive because he's going through the harvesting process. If you started that fire, you are not only responsible for the field, but for the property damage that was lost in the field. Okay, let's continue. Verse seven, if a man gives his neighbor money or goods to keep for him and it is stolen from the man's house, if the thief is caught, he shall pay double. If the thief is not caught, then the owner of the house shall appear before the judges to determine whether he laid his hands on his neighbor's property. For every breach of trust, whether it is for ox, for donkey, for sheep, for clothing, or for any lost thing, about which one says, this is it. The case of both parties shall come before the judges. He whom the judges condemn shall pay double to his neighbor. Okay, so now in verses number seven through nine, what we have is simply as this. If a man gives his neighbor money or goods to keep for him, if you give your neighbor something, remember they didn't have a bunch of banks and things that we have in our day and time, okay? So you would sometimes give your neighbor something of yours and your neighbor would keep this for you. So if you give your neighbor something to keep for you, let's say for instance, whether money or sheep or something like that, let's just simply go with the sheep. And all of a sudden the sheep is missing. The sheep comes up missing and is stolen. If you catch the thief with the property, then the thief shall be fined double. So you end up paying double. But if the thief is not caught, if the thief is not caught and the man that you gave your property to says, I didn't steal it. I didn't steal it. I don't know what happened to it. And we don't have a thief then both of you shall go before the judges. Now the word here, interesting, and I don't want to put a lot of time in this, but let me put a little bug in your ear with this one. The word here for judges is Elohim. So it could literally say they shall go before God or actually it would be the gods. The mindset, what the scripture is trying to say and is properly translated here is they shall go before the judges. So the word Elohim, which is normally translated as God, as God is here also translated as judges because that's the idea, the judge. So that would be a case in where both men would go before the judges, the one who gave you your prop the property to keep and the one in whose possession the property was given but was lost somehow and he says he didn't steal it but he doesn't have it anymore. The judge will then determine the case. And if the man was proven that who, and whom, who has the property, if it comes out that the man actually, the idea here is, stole the property, then he would have to pay double, pay the owner double 
to what was actually lost. Whether it is money or sheep, goat, or anything, it will be double. Again, dealing with the issue of what? Property rights and also dealing with the commandment of what? Of not stealing, okay? Because what? You're not only going to suffer because you have done this, but you're going to pay a penalty as a deterrent. Now, let's continue. Verse number 10. If a man gives his neighbor a donkey or an ox or a sheep or any animal to keep for him and it dies or is hurt or is driven away while no one is looking, an oath before the Lord shall be made by the two of them that he has not laid his hands on his neighbor's property and its owner shall accept it and he shall not make restitution. But if it is actually stolen from him, he shall make restitution to his owner. I like that. It's interesting, isn't it? If it is all torn to pieces, let him bring it as evidence. He shall not make restitution for what has been torn to pieces. Okay, so now we get to another instance. And here we have a man giving an, his neighbor property. Notice what it says, whether it's a donk or ox or anything like that, to keep for him. And in the process of the man keeping it for his neighbor, it is, it is actually hurt or it dies and nobody knows exactly what happens to it. So something has happened to it. And the man said, you know, that donkey that you gave to me is dead. I don't know what happened to it or, or it's gone or, or something is hurt. I don't know. I don't know what happened to it. Then both of the men should once again take an oath here this time before the Lord. And that actually is simply the idea of going once again before the judges, take an oath before the Lord and what? That he has not laid his hands on the property. In other words, say you say, I didn't do anything to your lawnmower, you know. <laughs> it just is <laughs> somebody else, somebody else did something to it. I have no idea what happened to it. And I I make an oath before God. And then the property owner simply has to accept his word and no restitution can be made. So once again, if you have a property, no matter what the property is, and you give it to someone to keep for you and something happens to that property, notice what it said, whether they die, hurt, or driven away, and there is no one to see. No one is looking. There is no evidence of who did what to it. You can't prove it. Then you simply have to accept the person's word for it and no restitution can be made to the property that you gave to the person to keep for you. But that's when verse number 12 comes in. If it is actually stolen from him, that now here's the thing that you have to see. So if, for example, you give your lawnmower, your donkey or whatever to your neighbor for safekeeping and someone comes because of the negligence of your neighbor, the negligence of your neighbor and steals your lawnmower, then your neighbor is responsible to make restitution to the owner. So if you 
Let your neighbor keep something for you and your neighbor is negligent in protecting, protecting your property. Your neighbor has to pay the value of your property. So what does that say? It says to me that if I don't want to have to pay you for your for your property, it's best not to keep your stuff for you. You need to keep your stuff for yourself or let somebody else keep it for you. But once again, what is the law also teaching us? It's a sense of love and respect. Once again, love your neighbor as yourself. It's a sense all of that is involved because what? If you are not caring enough for your neighbor, first of all, you accepted the responsibility to keep his property for him. You accepted that. Nobody made you do it. Nobody forced you to do it. So therefore, you are obligated for the safekeeping of that property. And if anything happens to his property while it's in your care, it now becomes, no, you are obligated to give restitution for what has happened to that man's property. Why? Because you have failed to keep and protect your neighbor's property with whom, or should I even say, by whom he put this into your trust. And even, now this is just the Eric commandment that I'm saying here. As for what I'm saying, it's best for me not to keep another person's property so that I don't have to be held responsible for it. Okay? But let's continue on. Uh, then it said in verse number 13, before we move on in, that if it is torn to pieces, that is, say for instance, you have somebody's sheep or whatever, and you say, well, I didn't harm it, it's torn to pieces. Say for instance, a lion got it and a lion destroyed it. Then that's when you bring it before the judges and you show proof. I didn't steal it. I didn't hurt it. Look, you can tell what? That a lion has destroyed your sheep. And so therefore, no restitution has to be made. All right. Now let's continue on. Verse number 14. If a man borrows anything from his neighbor and it is injured or dies while in his owner, while his owner is not with it, he shall make full restitution. If his owner is with it, he shall not make restitution. It for <laughs> if it is hired, it came for its higher. Okay. So now let's talk about what he's saying here. So now he says, so if a man, this is not a neighbor giving you something, but this is you borrowing something from your neighbor. Okay. So if you should borrow from something from your neighbor and what happened, something happens to it. As the text said, it's injured or it dies. Say for instance, an animal, this is what you kind of see about it, right? See like renting an ox, renting an ox. Okay. But it, it, it dies or is injured and the owner is not with it. You make full restitution. Let me give you a modern day uh, scenario. If you borrow your neighbor's lawnmower, you borrow his lawnmower and the neighbor gives you the lawnmower and goes on back to his own house. Whatever happens to that lawnmower, if it breaks or whatever, you are responsible to make restitution for that lawnmower. Then the next part of it says, however, if the neighbor, if the owner is with it and he shall make not restitution. So the idea here is it is now a rental. 
It is a rental. It is not simply borrowed. It is not borrowed, but it is being rented from another person. So if while being rented by, by, by the, by the person, <laughs> if by being rented, then something happens to it. No restitution for the item shall be made. Why? Because that is a part of the rental price. So if you tell your neighbor, neighbor, I'll pay you $35 if you will let me use your lawnmower. And if you're using the neighbor's lawnmower and break his lawnmower while you're using it, you don't pay him full restitution. Why? Because the $35 is a part of that rental price. It's a part of that fee overall. And it goes to the lawnmower. That's the risk that your neighbor took in renting the mow out to you. Okay. All right. Now let's go to 16. I think we might be able to finish it. If a man seduces a virgin who is not engaged and lies with her, he must pay a dowry for her to be his wife. If her father absolutely refuses to give her to him, he shall pay money equal to the dowry for virgins. Okay. Now we have, and I don't want to get into a lot of issues with this because this is a beauty within itself. But if a man, and now this is voluntary, right? If a man has sexual intercourse with an unmarried woman, or a woman who is not engaged to be married, okay? He has sexual intercourse with this woman. He must pay a dowry to the family. Now, the reason why it says with an unmarried woman who is not engaged, because the law has already said, if a woman is married or a woman is engaged to be married, which is basically the same thing in the law, engaged to be married and has a, a consensual sexual relationship with another man that is not her husband and not the man she's engaged with. Then both the man and the man who had sex with the woman and the woman who was engaged or married, both of them shall be put to death. But here what we have is consenting sex between an unmarried woman who is not engaged and a man. And so what happens is this woman, now here's what you have to understand. There is a gift called the dowry that is given to the family because this man has done it in an improper way. He just simply had sex with the woman without intention, intending to marry her whatsoever. Even though you did it in the wrong way, you are still responsible for that dowry that is to be paid to the family. <laughs> he still has to pay this particular dowry to the family. So this would, and then after paying the dowry to the family, he is to marry this woman. That is, if the father is willing to give his daughter to be married to that man. But if the father is still unwilling to give the daughter to be married to the man who, 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 who had sex with his daughter, the man still must pay the dowry. So there is both the penalty of paying the dowry as well as the necessity of marrying the woman. Now, two things I want to make on this before I lose my train of thought. 
The reason why this comes under the general idea of property is because the daughter was viewed as the property of the parents. So you see, what you have to understand is this. This is basically the principle in operation. The daughter would be raised by the family all her life. She'd be raised by the, by the father all her life, all of the money that went, in, went into the raising of the daughter. And then finally, when the daughter is to be married, the man who seeks to marry the daughter would give a monetary gift to the family. This would be in a sense to compensate the family for the money that was spent in the raising of the daughter. So in a sense, the daughter is considered a property, a, in a sense of property because of the money. The sons were not considered to be a sense of property in the same way because once the sons became of age, they can go out and work and gain money for the family. But the daughter did not go out and work. Remember, in, in those times in the Bible days, the women did not simply go out like we women do today, go out and get jobs and work. Like they didn't do that in those particular times. The women were generally usually provided for by their husbands or their fathers, that is their family. Okay. So the women were basically viewed as liability. That is money was spent. And they, this is why this sense of property comes with the women. Why? They did not make any money while they were unmarried. So by the time that the man came and wanted to marry, he paid a dowry in a sense of compensation to the family. Okay? So the dowry here is given by the man who chose to sleep with the woman without marrying the woman. Right? He's, he's going to pay the dowry because what? Her value is lessened because now he has slept with the virgin, okay? And then, of course, he would have to marry her if the father was still permitted. Now, the second thing that I want to say about this is this. Can you appreciate how much sexual immorality would be eliminated if we practice this today? That is... If you told a man, told a boy or whatever, young man or whatever, if you have, or a young lady as well, if you have sex outside of marriage, you just got married whether you wanted to or not. And that's the principle of what's going on behind this particular verse in that sense. If you have sexual relationships apart from marriage, you just got married. And if the father would say, whether you wanted to or not, that would truly eliminate so many uh, pregnancies without fathers in the homes and un unmarried women. It would eliminate a whole heap of things in our society. The poverty rate in our society would plummet. Why? Because women who have children outside of marriage fall more so into poverty than women who are married. But I'm not going to get into a discussion of all of those things. I just want to bring that to your attention. But now let's simply continue. 18. You shall not allow a sorceress to live. Whoever lies with an animal shall surely be put to death. He who sacrifices to any god 
other than to the Lord alone shall, shall be utterly destroyed. Now, notice you probably noticed that uh, I read those three verses together and they seem that they have nothing in common, but they do. Two things that they have in common. Number one, whether it is a sorceress or a be person who commits bestiality, that is to sleep, to have sex with an animal or a idol worshiper. They are all deserving of the death penalty. That's the first thing that they can have in common. The second thing that these verses have in common is they were the common practices of the Canaanites in idolatry. They were common Canaanite practices in idolatry. And remember, as we are giving the book of Exodus, the mindset that God has given to the children of Israel is you are going into the land of Canaan. Remember those seven great Canaanite nations are there and all of the horrific sins that they practiced there. And one of the sins that they practiced there is idolatry. And they practice idolatry in a number of ways. Number one, through witchcraft. And that's why God said, do not allow a sorceress to live. Why? Because the sorceress, first of all, she is appealing to an idol God or to demons. And she is influencing others to turn away from the true God. Number two, those who are having sexual relations with beasts for the Canaanites would, uh, would engage in this type of practice in their worship of idolatry. So those who engage in bestiality put them to death for this uh, immorality. And then finally, to sacrifice to any other God. And that is simply the basis for idolatry as a whole. So these three sins categorize idolatry and were practiced by the Canaanites. Okay, now let's continue. Verse 21, you shall not wrong a stranger or oppress him, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. You shall not afflict any widow or orphan if you afflict him at all. And if he does cry out to me, I will surely hear his cry and my anger will be kindled and I will kill you with the sword and your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. Now, this particular section deals with uh, oppressing those who cannot fend for themselves, oppressing those who are weak and oppressing those who are not strong among us. And he gives three categories of people that is foreigners. And you can understand it. And I'm going to give a lot of information by it. if a person is just coming into the land, many things he does not know possessions they will not have. And if anybody can be quickly abused, misused or oppressed by people who live there, it's foreigners. You can easily misuse these types of people. Another group of people, widows and orphans. Remember, widows are women whose husbands have died and their children they have no father. And remember what I just told you, women didn't work like we do nowadays. So therefore, many times if the woman died, I'm sorry, if the man died and the children were young, the woman had no true source of income if the man wasn't well off in the beginning. So the woman would be left to what? 
poverty. The child would be left what? To poverty. And both the woman and the child could easily be misused and abused by others. So what God is simply saying is do not abuse and misuse the, the weak ones among you or the ones who can easily be abused among you. Because if you do, when they cry out to God because of your mistreatment of them, God says he will hear and ultimately he will turn the tables in what way? That your wives would end up being widows and your children would end up being fatherless children, which means that he's either going to kill you or send you off into slavery by another person. But anyway, but the whole point of it here is don't abuse those who are weak amongst you or those who can't fend for themselves amongst you. Okay, let's continue. Verse number 25. If you lend money to my people, to the poor among you, you are not to act as a creditor to him. You shall not charge him interest. If you, if you ever take your neighbor's cloak as a pledge, you are to return it to him before the sun sets, for that is his only covering. It is his cloak for his body. What else shall he sleep in? And it shall come about that when he cries out to me, I will hear him, for I am gracious. Okay, so now he's talking about the lending of money to the poor. So first he says that if you ever lend money to poor, to people who don't have anything, to poor people, do not lend money to poor people at interest. Lend it to them money for money. If you lend them $50, they pay back $50. Why? They're already poor. So once again, God is teaching what? Loving the neighbor, being sensitive to those who are the weak among us, not abusing them, misusing them, caring for them, loving your neighbor as yourself, doing unto others as you would have them to do what? To do unto you. So if the poor man borrows money, he is not to pay interest. And in the second case, say for instance, if he uses his cloak, that is his outer garment, if he uses that for collateral, so that you already see that he is poor. Why? If he has to use his own covering, his covering as collateral, he has nothing else. It says, if he gives that to you for a form of collateral, by the time that the night fall, why? It gets cold at night. You return his cloak back to him. Why? Because he has nothing else to sleep in. He uses this cloak to sleep in. So if you just simply hold on to this cloak and say, you don't get this cloak back until you get my money back because you used your cloak as collateral. You are showing you have no consideration. You have no care and concern for the poor. But what does God say? You may not have any care, but I do. And when he cries out to me because of how you have treated him, not in accordance to the law, but how you have kept his cloak, I promise I'm going to come and see about you. And that will not be good for you. So the whole idea, once again, like it talked about what? Those three classes of people, foreigners, 
widows and fatherless children. Do not abuse them. And here, what is also inclusive of this, people who are poor, how to treat them when it comes to lending. Do not abuse those who are weak and those who have nothing. Have compassion on them. Why? God himself has compassion on them and try to do things to help them. Don't do things to use them. Don't do things to abuse them. Don't look to abuse and use people. That's why I say that the law is so wonderful principally when we look at it. Okay, no more preaching. Let's just get into the end of it. 28, you shall not curse God nor curse a ruler of your people. You sh okay, and here it's just simply giving the idea of respect. Respect for number one, God, and respect for number two, leaders of your people, for the rulers, for senators, representatives, for judges, for the president, for governors, whoever is in a position of authority, because this is the foundation of a workable society. You must respect authority and the chief and sovereign authority over all is God himself. And in respecting God himself, then God himself says also respect the leaders that are over you, not just simply the church leaders. No, no, no. Leaders in this political world, a ruler of your people. All right. 29. You shall not delay the offering from your harvest and your vintage. The firstborn of your sons you shall give to me. You shall do the same with your oxen and with your sheep. It shall be with his mother seven days. On the eighth day you shall give it to me. So now here is dealing with the offering and it deals with greed and selfishness here. Okay. But notice what it says. You shall not delay the offering of your harvest, whether it's the harvest or the vintage. In other words, when it is time to pay, whether it is the tithing that should come from your offering or any gifts that have been commanded by God in the law, any gifts offering that should come from it, give it at once. Don't sit there and hold it. Let me say it this way and hold it till you change your mind or talk yourself out of giving it. When it is time to give, give. And let me do a little talking on the side here. Do this in your own life. Practice this in your own life in giving. Don't sit there. If God has blessed you and you have it in your hand to give, to bless God's ministry, to bless the church or in whatever fashion that you bless the work of God. Don't just sit there and hold it or sit there and stash all the money and keep it for yourself. What did God even say here? Do not delay. Give it at once. And then he even says, enough preaching on that. Then he continues to say, even if it's the firstborn of your son, that what he simply means is he's coming back from Exodus 13. We remember when God killed the firstborn of Egypt. And when he killed the firstborn of Egypt, he said, because of this, 
Israel, your firstborn son, belong to me and they are to be redeemed. Redeemed simply means there's to be a price paid, a redemption price paid in money for the redemption of your son. So you need to do these things quickly while you have the money without delay, whether it is your firstborn son or even whether it is Notice the firstborn of animals also belong to the Lord as talked about in Exodus 13. So even whether it's the firstborn of your son or the firstborn of animals, they shall all be redeemed. But the point that I'm stressing here is when God simply says, you shall not keep it, but you shall pay it quickly. And that's the idea. Do what you're supposed to do while you have it. All right final verse you shall be holy um, you shall be holy men to me therefore you shall not eat any flesh torn to pieces in the field you shall throw it to the dogs okay and now this verse simply talks about this Israel is to in their sense of holiness okay it is to be represented both externally as well as internally. Internal holiness is keeping in the righteous precepts of God. Here he's talking about an animal that is found torn in the field. Because the animal is not kosher, that is, the blood was not drained from the animal in a proper way. The animal cannot be eaten because it is now unclean because the blood has not been drained properly. Thus, for you to eat an animal torn in the field with the blood not drained properly, it is unclean, you will be unclean. But every facet of the Israelite life, every facet of God's people's lives was to be of holiness. So therefore, as their internal heart, their internal beings were supposed to be a reflection of holiness, so in their external practices, there was supposed to be a reflection of holiness. Holiness within, holiness without, concerning you, as Leviticus 11 and 44 says, for I am the Lord your God, you shall therefore sanctify yourself, set yourself apart, and be holy because I am holy. Okay, guys. <laughs> Thank you for joining me in Exodus chapter 22. Join me next time as we get into Exodus 23 and we deal with a bunch of miscellaneous laws. Okay, see you next time. <music>